For November 6th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 488. Thor Macklemore. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together and talking with each other and with you about the things that delight and fascinate us. This week, it's Thor Ragnarok, the latest entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, one that seems to seek to capitalize on the success, the artistic success of Guardians of the Galaxy in uh, tone um, that seeks to revise some of the uh, some of the aspects of, of Thor as a, you know, sort of out of touch frat boy uh, in and the butt of a lot of jokes in earlier entries in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in, in the Thor franchise even. Um, you know, his sort of fish out of water, uh, status and kind of density and, uh, and a, a film that does, uh, I mean, a film that, that does a lot of things with, uh, the, the Marvel characters, with continuity, of the MCU, with Norse mythology and is a uh, good fodder for overthinking. I'm Matt Rather. I'm joined by your friends, overthinkers, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. Uh, Pete, um, first of all, I, I think we need a little Norse mythology refresher here. Do you think you can, you can help us? Yeah, sure. Do you want me to explain to you what Ragnarok is? I mean, to start. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> and I'm, this is going to be editorialized and it's going to be framed in a way to make it useful. So Ragnarok is a story that is found in a couple of different literary fragments uh, and, and uh, sources, including a prose version, a poetical version that's handed down from generation to generation from Norse mythology about the future end of the world. And it is interesting for a bunch of reasons. It is the twilight of the gods when supposedly all the protagonists in the other stories in Norse mythology will pretty much all die and will all be killed by various sorts of monsters. And fire demons and ice demons and other sorts of terrible forces of nature. They will all converge on the gods and kill them, and the world will end. Now, there is a story of rebirth in there, but before I even get to that, one thing I want to clarify here is why do we care about this particular story in Norse mythology and why does it matter? So when you're thinking about old pagan stories, pre-Christian pagan stories, even, say, pre-Columbian stories in Latin America, to make it less Eurocentric, when you're talking about the old myths that societies developed for themselves before literacy, before the sort of connectiveness between peoples allowed there to be these big monolithic uh, religions that were also cultures, that were also government systems, and everything was all connected with everything else. There's these old myths that grew up around smaller communities and that there's a certain appeal to these these stories. And part of it is something of a resistance to this idea of universal stories that should be true for everybody and have this sort of moral weight behind them, and we're kind of looking for an alternate way to explain ourselves. But another part of it is that even independent of the argument over what's true, right? So you might have an argument between an old, you know, back in the day, a pagan who worshipped Thor and then a Christian who is trying to convert the pagan to Christianity, and they'd be arguing about what was real. And 
outside of the context of that kind of conflict, there still are good stories in the myths that feel like they connect with something that's related to humanity and being human, uh, to socialization, to, to culture, sure, but but also to this use of symbol to relate to the world. And you can go through any sorts of different kind of disciplines like linguistics or semiotics or philosophy or science and find these gaps of understanding that can get plugged by people with the with symbols and with with stories. And so Ragnarok is a captivating story because of its tragic note. The idea that the gods die and that the gods are valiant and they fight but they still die. And there's something about this story that resonates with people. And so it has been carried around from culture to culture all over the world and told many many times. Uh, there's anime, there's Korean stories, video games, movies. You know, there's a lot There's a lot on the Wikipedia disambiguation page, I believe, right? Um, it's, uh, in fact, I go, I'm, at, I'm on the one for the uh, Korean manga, or the Korean manhwa, as it were, uh, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it doesn't even link to the disambiguation page. I guess it's just sort of assumed. But I don't need to read Wikipedia to tell you about Ragnarok. But the point is that the tragic part of it and the feeling of loss associated with it, but also the feeling of determination seems to have some sort of appeal as a story that speaks to the human condition, independent of whether you believe that characters like Thor, Odin, you know, the, the Fenris wolf, the Midgard serpent, Hela, the Lord of, you know, the, the Lord of Niflheim and, and, and of the dead. Whether you think that they sort of matter in terms of describing the universe, the story still resonates. So, with that in mind, like, what are the sort of basic ideas of Ragnarok? There's a wolf that comes out and eats the sun. The queen of the dead attacks. The big giant demons who represent, the, you know, the elements of fire and ice and whatnot, they attack. Everything converges on Asgard. And the gods die. And the reason that the gods die in Ragnarok is that over time, the gods have made various sorts of compromises or they've made various sorts of mistakes that have caused them to lose very small, almost incremental sorts of advantages, such as, you know, a magical dancing sword that can fight by itself. If only we still had that, but we lost it because of the stupid adventure that happened hundreds of years ago. Because we don't have this thing at Ragnarok, we won't win. Uh, there's these ideas of if only, you know, if only we were able to have Balder back from the dead, then of course we would win Ragnarok. Like the gods could win Ragnarok if only they didn't, if they only they still had all the things that they lost along the way. And one of the captivating things about Norse mythology in general is the attitude about loss. And there's this idea that you give things up in order to achieve things, but you also lose things over time. And there's this creeping dread in it that eventually in the future, there's going to be a reckoning for all of the little things that you lost that at the time sort of felt like they, it didn't really matter. Um, so I think, is that a fairly good, do you want a little bit more detail on how they, the specific stuff that happens no, in Ragnarok? I mean, I, or does that give us enough to like understand what's happening? Like the world gets destroyed. There's two people that are left inside of the roots of a tree and they come out and they repopulate the world afterwards. So that's kind of the idea. But yeah. um, I, Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, no, I think that's interesting. I mean, the, the interesting thing to me, well, uh, of the many interesting things, the one that I want to seize on is the the aspect of fatalism in it, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the kind of the, the gloomy mood, right? Because it seems to be not of a piece well a, a couple things it seems to be not of a piece with um 
with the kind of the triumphalist uh, uh, ethos of superhero movies in general, right? And the idea of, you know, I don't know, the idea of strength um, or, you know, strength coupled to to bravery and, you know, good intentions, uh, sort of winning the day. And... Uh, and then also just like it doesn't seem to be of a piece with the the kind of quirky and fun um Thor Ragnarok movie which has a uh you know a, a I don't know sort of 80s uh uh 80s aesthetic and in a lot of its um uh in a lot of its visual design and a lot of its marketing material that makes it seem you know, I don't know, a little more, a little more fun than the kind of the, the compromised, gloomy, uh, uh, faded to, faded to be destroyed, um, thing that, that happened. And, and, and also, I mean, I think the movie pulls its punch a little bit with the actual destruction of the world, but, but we can get to that, uh, we can get to that later. I mean, the, the, the gloom is something that I think is attractive, but is not, um, is not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily of a piece with a lot of our culture's kind of dominant stories in this regard. Well, the, the other thing that comes to mind here that um, differs uh, from what Pete described as a traditional story of uh, of Ragnarok and what we saw in the movie is the the very crucial uh, plot point that doesn't happen, which is the gods don't die. Right. Mm. I mean, I suppose we're heading to that eventually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where the main players, Tony Stark, Captain America, so on and so forth. All these lead actors are going to have to go away at some point. And so the gods will die, but not in this movie. Right. Sure. Odin died. Uh, but Thor, all the main players continued on, on, on you know, survive on the spaceship and uh, we'll, we'll go and continue the Asgardian legacy and we'll go back to Earth and continue to fight and that sort of thing. So um, I, I get the sort of like the rebirth, the cycle piece and how, uh, you know, Asgard was destroyed in order to save it and how the people will continue to go on. But the key part about the gods not dying uh, is a big punch that was pulled, I got to say. That's like kind of my main takeaway when I think about the Ragnarok piece. So there's two things to add to this. One is that one of the ways in which the story of Ragnarok and also Norse mythology in general has been pulled out and translated is in the post-psychedelic establishment of heavy metal aesthetic. Like, sort of psychedelic rock, acid rock, and this idea of altered states of consciousness, then hooking into these ideas of mythology and symbolism, creating a similar sort of dis, not disordered in a, in a sort of chaotic way of like, I don't know what's happening, but disordered in the sense of fighting against the fundamental orders that society is placing on you in the spirit of rock music. Like Ragnarok and Norse mythology has a huge place in rock music. Uh, it, it has a huge place in Tolkien. Tolkien has a huge place in rock music. This is a movie that revolves around – it was bookended, rather, by Led Zeppelin. And this – Ragnarok has events on it that you spray paint on the sides of vans. So, like, <laughs> I don't want to necessarily say that it is just gloomy. It is dark. It is very dark. But it is also raging and fiery, and there's stuff flying through the sky, and valiant warriors with mighty, powerful, superpowered weapons, and lightning and thunder. And a lot of the monsters die, too. And so – there's a gloom, but there's also a real just hollering yell that's associated with Ragnarok. And, you know, like Roddy uh, James Dio and, and Led Zeppelin and, and uh, all sorts of stuff like this. Yeah, I it believe that howling it. yell sounds like, ah! <laughs> right? yeah. yeah, the immigrant song um, music cue, which is used, um, deployed to fantastic effect. Yeah, 
And some of the gods do die, right? Like the like all of the other all of the secondary protagonists of the first two Thor movies, other than Natalie Portman at this point, are dead. Huh. Uh, well, I guess the humans aren't, but like all of the all of the other Asgardians, other than other Thor than and Loki, Loki, yeah, and and Heimdall, Heimdall's still around, and I guess Scourge, played by uh, Chronicles of Riddick's own Carl Urban, reprising his role as the Lieutenant of the Necromockers, <laughs> is, uh, he's still around. <laughs> but but like the other, and I, it's funny because I don't even remember the names of some of them. Um, so I'm like, I'm like looking up the cast to Thor: The Dark World, where they have a bigger part. Um, but you know, Seif is gone, and um, I mean, it's it's not that important. But the guy, the guy from the guy from Rome, uh, Volstag. These are these are not major Norse mythological figures, but like Frigga. Uh, you know, th- there's various sorts of Norse gods that have been in the other Thor movies up until this point uh, that aren't alive at the end of this movie. Oh, Hogan. Right, the Asian Norse god, the the forgotten Asian Norse god, Hogun, um, and such. But, I never, uh, I but, never, I never read Hogun. It was one of those, uh, you know, nineteen eighties books that was just way too thick for me. Yeah, <laughs> but like Tyr is already dead, uh, and and it's like there's a, a lot of the other Norse gods are dead, but yeah, you're. I mean, I guess if it's is it not dark enough for you for Thor to get his eye gouged out and to watch his homeland explode? I guess, I guess it's still – there is a punch pulled in that the world does – well, okay. So there's a thing that happens to Ragnarok in this movie, which is that you're right. It gets totally co-opted and changed. Like Ragnarok gets kind of sold out, but not in a bad way. Yeah, it gets, it gets Terminator 3 a little bit, right? Where like it's – you know the point, was, the point was never to prevent Judgment Day. The point was to survive it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and – uh, uh, and Thor flies off with Claire Danes into the into the bunker until the after credit scene, but the the um, the, the mid credit scene, I should say, um, and, and uh, mid guard of the credits of this movie <laughs> in Nibelheim, the credits of this movie, which is when the blue screen with the rating comes up at the end. Um, but the the uh, you know, but a, a little bit of the like, I you know, I it uh, whenever like someone actually in a non satirical way wants me to take the the central spaceballs insight uh that the schwartz was in you lone star it was in you and that like uh you know the spirit of the asgard is a spirit it's a it's a people it's it's not a place right like it's no that's that that has that is false right like that statement is <laughs> that statement is not borne out by the uh by you know the whole rest of the the uh storytelling structure that's been built up around it um, up to this point, because how are there stakes if that's if that's in fact if that's in fact the case? So, um, you know, I don't know. I I, I, di- I do think it it just in the writing there there maybe the idea of maybe the idea of destruction and paying a terrible price. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a terrible price has been paid. It feels like maybe a price has been paid, but that the the sense of um, you know the sense of dread and the sense of kind of uh the sense of kind of doom and the sense of like the the it's not exactly mourning but it's a it's a kind of um it's a kind of acknowledgement uh, of what we've lost rather than kind of flying hopefully off into the future is you know is is different from Norse mythology which is not to say that it's which is not to say that it's a bad movie right like i i sort of really really enjoyed the movie yeah. I, now, there are other aspects of Norse mythology, which I think the movie hooks into more than the story of Ragnarok, yeah. which I think helped flesh this out. And I also think there are other 
spiritual, mythological, mystical systems that are combining to make this movie, which is a Marvel cosmic movie. This is Marvel cosmic is its own aesthetic. I think of it that way. Silver Surfer, Thor, Doctor Strange. These are these kinds of stories. Uh, ten, I associate the oeuvre of these kinds of stories with this idea of Marvel cosmic. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Two is the sort of or Marvel cosmic movie where everything gets like super crazy and psychedelic, and you're out in outer space, and you're with Ego, the Living Planet, and stuff. This is a movie that has a celestial in it. The I think the Grandmaster is a celestial like Ego, the Living Planet, the villain from Guardians of the Galaxy Two, though they don't talk oh. about him. Uh, yeah, because they say he's the first who was found at the beginning when they're explaining who he is. Um, so I believe that that's true, and I want to clarify it. But so. So, Because here's the thing, is that this is a story about Ragnarok happening, but it's also a story about Thor fundamentally changing. Right. And, yeah, yeah. And, it's not, yeah, and it's not just Thor becoming a better Thor. It's about Thor becoming Odin. Thor becomes the father of his people in this story. And he very specifically makes this Odin-like transformation, wherein, you know, I talked about how in, and you brought, I think you brought up, the, the stakes of the sacrifice are different. So I want to think about the Odin sort of sacrifice versus the Ragnarok sort of sacrifice. So in Ragnarok, it's like, oh, you know, the reckoning has finally come for all the things that we've lost. We will fight and fight and fight to our last breath, but this is the end of days. And, you know, the earth, earth will be torn asunder and, and plunged into fire and everybody will die. But for Odin, as the all-father god, he makes sacrifices through the course of his stories to achieve greater wisdom and, and through it greater power. Uh, you know, he sacrifices his eye. Uh, he, he sacrifices Odin, – Odin in one of the famous stories hangs himself from the tree of life, from Yggdrasil, the world tree, and uh, is able then to sort of achieve a grand – transcendental sort of wisdom by living in this sort of dead place. And this is in this movie where Odin is in this space of death and knowledge and Thor has to visit Odin in the place of death and knowledge and Thor has to give up his eye. You know that's that phrase I give up my right eye for that. That's Odin. That's that's, that's <laughs> Captain Captain Wednesday right there, right? Is uh, that's, that's where Wednesday <laughs> comes from by the way is Woden, the variant on Odin. Um but it's about Thor going from being the well, first, the god of hammers, <laughs> to then becoming the god of thunder, and also becoming the, the sort of father of his people, uh, going from being the son to the father and, and taking responsibility for Asgard in the way that Odin did, but also achieving a, a sort of greater wisdom. And there's a bunch of other spiritual, mythological, symbolic paradigms that are used in this movie – I mean, my, my contention is that the reason that they're used in the movie is not necessarily so that the movie can communicate some sort of great transcendental truth, but because the movie has a cosmic and psychedelic or post-psychedelic vibe that it is trying to achieve. And in order for it to achieve that, all of the crazy stuff that's happening on screen has to have some sort of mysterious meaning credibly associated with it. So that like, by taking it all in, you're not just being bounced from sensation to sensation, but you're being bounced from symbol to symbol and meaning to meaning. And that's part of what unmoors you in it. And that's also sort of what allows the comedy to land more, I think, because it's not just chaos. It's chaos that is organized, but it's organized through like a half dozen different sorts of sets of principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, there, and and you definitely have that that feeling in the movie, right? Like the yeah. feeling of being in good hands or in hands, anyway. The feeling of being in hands rather than being in in kind of a random a random barrage, right? Uh, I mean, I think it's uh, I think you know, like to me, it's sort of a successful film in the 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 also kind of the the meta aim of lightening up some of the the dour qualities of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Ragnaros, right? Because Thor, Thor is going to bring this back. You know, this isn't the this isn't the tone of Civil War. You know, <laughs> and no, like Ken Burns or Marvel, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> my, my my dearest Natalie Portman, it has been a long march. We have no shoes, but we hope that the rebels will give up the fight and return to this union, so we can make it whole again, and I can come back to our farm in Pennsylvania. Has that someone? Someone on the internet can have this idea for free. Ken Burns, Captain America, Civil War. You know, that's like that's uh, just retell the story with with like black and white stills that you do the Ken Burns kind of photograph slidey effect on. Man, that would be that would be really wonderful. Um, and you know, and actors who don't actually sound like the uh, who don't actually sound like the actors in the film doing voiceover of. Uh, of the the stuff that would be that would be really great. I write you from the I write you from the airport. Uh, the, we are about to destroy it. It seems so pointless to me to spend forty five minutes in an enormous CGI battle. Um, yeah. But before we get too far from uh, Thor's personal journey and his character development in this in this movie, uh, can we talk about the loss of his hair? I mean, he loses two very important things, and well, three three very important things in this movie: his father, his hammer. And his hair, um, right. in and, that order. And, uh, yeah, and, and they're they're, <laughs> in, in, they're in all... increasing order of importance. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right, and I'm saying like you know we make kind of make light of the hair, but the hair is is really important. My question is why? What exactly is it about? I mean, the 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 father, I get it because it's dad. He's the the you know the the father of the people. The hammer because it's his weapon, and Thor thinks that that is intrinsically his power, where in fact it isn't. But the hair is just an aesthetic thing. It's his style. Why is losing the hair? seemed like such a big deal in this movie so for me the fact that stan lee chops it off with the crazy hand is, a, is an amazing scene with the robot hand but for me it's tied into one of the wonderfulest most delightful it's a delightful touch in a movie full of delightful touches which is the whole thing with the password on the quinjet where in order for thor to use the quinjet he has to use the name for himself that tony stark thinks he should rather than the name for himself that he would use and so thor and 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 it's was wonderful okay so there's a sequence that happens there's a sequence of events that take place in order and the first the beginning of the sequence is when we get that long borderline pornographic sequence about Chris Hemsworth's body, where he wakes up after being kind of saunaed back to life, after having been beaten beaten to hell and back by the Hulk in the gladiatorial ring. And he gets up and he's shirtless and the camera revolves around him for a really long time. And you see his body and how impressive and imposing it is. But then there's Hulk. And Hulk is bigger and hulk is much stronger and hulk trivializes thor's size and strength and and there's this wonderful banter that goes back and forth between them where you know thor is trying to say that he's like hulk i'm like you right you know and 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 he's like hulk's like no i'm like fire hulk's like fire thor's like water and he's like no well we're both like fire and then hulk's like yeah but hulk's a raging fire thor's like a little (laughs) bit little baby fire like that kind of thing right and there's this wonderful banter but what it's really doing is showing that Thor can't hang with Hulk on strength. That Thor has to find another way. Like, this idea that Thor thinks of himself as the strongest Avenger has to go. And a big part of why it has to go is because the existence of Hulk is infringing upon his identity, and he needs to find who he is separate from Hulk, which is funny because that is also sort of like a child and a father, right? He's like the little baby. He's got little baby arms, as Hulk says. So in in some sense, Hulk sort of becomes like... Thor's big brother or father figure, where Thor is trying to be like him, sort of, like trying to convince him that he's like him, but then has to realize that he's not like him. 
And so then they go to the Quinjet, right? And, and they go to the, after Hulk has been making fun of of Thor and and diminishing him. Uh, Hulk has been playing catch with the ball against the wall. Thor takes the same ball and tries to play catch against the wall with it, knocks himself in the face and like knocks himself flat. Right? Thor can't do what Hulk does. Thor's long hair to me is his is its sexual potency and and its body potency. And Thor having huge flowing locks is this idea of Thor is the strongest Avenger. But when now again the irony here is that Thor goes to the Quinjet and he says I'm the strongest Avenger and the Quinjet says No you're not the strongest Avenger Bruce Banner shows up later I'm the strongest Avenger yes you're the strongest Avenger and Thor has to say Well what am I and he says Oh I'm Point Break <laughs> and for that the Quinjet activates Now that's funny the the little bit of of leap you have to make there is that when he says he's Point Break he's saying he's like the Patrick Swayze character of Bodie in Point Break. Because that's what he looks like. And the, and the Patrick Swayze character of Bodhi in Point Break, for those who are not familiar, is is the Vin Diesel character from The Fast and the Furious, except a Buddhist surfer. <laughs> who, who, instead of uniting people in, in, in family, unites them in a sort of spiritual enlightenment and separation from the world as it's organized and the world uh, on the outside. And, and and it's funny because over the course of this journey, Thor has to meditate. Thor has to get in touch with the way things really are. Bodhi, as a term in Buddhism, refers to the sense that the Buddha has of the way that the universe actually is rather than the way that it appears, which is the realization Thor comes to when he's like, okay – Asgard isn't a place; it's a people. Asgard, I, you know, I'm the sort of guardian of his people. We need to have this exodus. We need to give up on this traditional idea of who we are. The the fresco has come down on the ceiling, and we need to sort of see the way that the world is. And so, for me, Thor having his hair cut is him being forced to not lean on that mighty strength that we see in the beginning of the movie, where he's he's fighting the dragon, he's fighting Suter in in. Uh, um, and oh, it's not Jotunheim. It's not Niflheim. He's in the land of the fire, fire giants, uh, whatever that's called. We'll leave it in the comments. Well, actually, me in the comments. But like that Thor can't go on anymore. And the new Thor is an enlightened Thor. And the new Thor is is a Bodhi Thor who comes with a certain wisdom and is a leader of a people who are kind of on the fringe or exiles because of his state of enlightenment about what they're supposed to do. And I think that um, that that's a big part of why his hair needs to get cut off because he's achieving he's achieving enlightenment. Although he's also getting little zappy lightning bolts getting shaved in the side of it, which is part of his new aesthetic uh and i guess is meant to complement his cheekbones i suppose i'm not sure huh. but something along those well, lines i mean the side shave is a you know is a uh contemporary is a good fashionable haircut right the the sort of undercut there <laughs> yeah he's he's got a well yeah it's, it's clearly it's not called thor macklemore uh it's called <laughs> thor <Ragnarok. laughs> He's going to go pop some tags is what he's going to go to. <laughs> see, see the, no, actually, you know what? That's funny. That's especially funny if you think of it as Thor Ragnar because Odin was trying to establish this veneer of what the history and legacy of Asgard was that ended up being fundamentally flawed and a lie. And, and, the, and the ultimate failure of Odin's legacy was that the ceiling couldn't hold them, <laughs> right? Like the ceiling can't <laughs> hold us. <laughs> <laughs> I am I N D E P E E N E T A Hustler. Jason drinks since I was four. No, no, no. Uh, like yes, they uh, they in fact fight like the ceiling can't hold them. Uh. It, oh. I mean, it's oh, sorry, Mark. You, you go. Uh, I, I was I I appreciate the Macklemore reference greatly. Um, 
I was going to go for a lower hanging fruit, which is to call that uh, a certain form of fake news um, or a, a false narrative of, of sorts. Uh, uh, as you said, Pete, papering over a, a a darker story, uh, which is which is the truth, the uncomfortable truth. Um, although I, I I'm I'm struggling to think how exactly does that fit in to uh, Thor's growth story and uh, and Odin's legacy in particular? Because you know we don't see that and think Odin was such a terrible guy and he's such a liar and he and you know that makes his lineage illegitimate and things like that. It's more just like, well, that's one, again, one of the things that one of the sacrifices that Odin had to make along the way. He lost his eye. He had to banish his sister. He had to make the concoct this, this cover story and paper and paper it over and, and work very hard to conceal it for so many, so many years like that. That's like, that's okay that he did all that kind of stuff. Um, Is it though? I, I, I don't know. I, I, we don't, we're not, I don't think we're meant to really, Question Odin and also his his lineage through through to the Thor so much or or are we? do you think we are Pete? <laughs> well, two things. One, if we consider the story of Odin hanging himself from the world tree, and we think of Anthony Hopkins as Odin after death in Norway on the green field, right? Which is also in the Led Zeppelin song, by the way, the immigrant song, which is which is the, the plot of the movie is very similar to the immigrant song by Led Zeppelin, which of course appears at the beginning and the end of the movie. You know, they come from the land of the ice and snow and the midnight sun and uh, and they they uh, go and conquer lands. They have to travel. They have to get in their ships and they have to leave and they have to deal with this legacy of bloodshed. But Odin seems to be wiser about his own situation after he dies than he is before he dies. Like being rendered powerless by Loki at the end of Thor two seems to have been good for Odin's wisdom. Uh, and so in achieving Odin's level, uh, Thor, Odin's level of wisdom, Thor and surpassing Odin in strength, uh, Thor, which is funny because he's not the strongest Avenger. So he, it, the idea that like Odin says to Thor that he is stronger, that's a different sort of strength than Hulk's strength because right. Hulk is the strongest there is. But I think that Odin is to an extent repudiating and regretting his legacy and, and sort of looking for a way forward. The other thing I would say is the Downton Abbey moment of the movie, which is uh, Scourge trying to get with those two ladies right at the very beginning of the movie where Scourge is like, well, yeah, you know, I just kind of hang out here because Heimdall doesn't work here anymore. But I have access to all nine realms. And, uh, you know, because of that. Look at all my stuff. <laughs> and the camera pans over and we see this giant pile of stuff. I think there's like a motor, like a space motorcycle. I thought there was a no, stormtrooper helmet. I, I thought it was a Vespa. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a Vespa. an Italian scooter. Yeah. <laughs> but but so so he has all this stuff and he's really proud of his stuff. And he thinks that his stuff is what's going to impress these women. And he also thinks that this stuff is gonna is what's gonna make him sort of beloved. He wants their love. I mean, he wants their sexy times, but he wants their love too and uh, in this sort of whole lot of love led zeppelin sense because this is this whole thing is taking place inside of a van basically this scene is taking place inside <laughs> of an airbrush van check out this cool stuff that i got uh but in the end for scourge it isn't the stuff that he has that ends up really redeeming him it's his it's the courage in his heart to go forward and face the dead yeah let yes the ar-15s help him in an extremely difficult to watch and and compelling scene i i i salute their bravery in putting that scene in the movie but it was really really rough that was a cringe scene for me given uh the sort of recent current events with high magazine ar-15s and and ak-47s and such 
But the point being that this is the movie where Thor loses his hammer. This is the movie where Odin loses his house. This is the movie where everybody who has had stuff that has allowed them to not face the internal truth of their own identity and destiny, that stuff all gets taken away. And that stuff all gets rendered meaningless. Like This is a movie that starts in a palace full of a vault of the most precious things imaginable, but then dumps the protagonists in a giant intergalactic garbage uh, hole where nobody comes back from like all of the stuff. Yeah. That's all the stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's the piles. It's the piles of stuff. Right. And, right. It's and a, if you're really stuff then you're garbage. Yeah. Go, go for it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of a non-apocalyptic uh, Blade Runner 2048, 2049. Yeah. Right. Or right. Whatever. Right. Right. 2050. I don't know. I forget. I, I haven't counted all the Blade Runners. <laughs> but the, the idea is, is that like uh, in, and I'm going somewhere with this, so so bear with me. In the the recent Blade Runner movie, that um, you know that sort of pile of junk, that that uh, scrap heap, is a sign of the apocalypse. is is a sign that something has gone very very wrong with society. And there are a couple of explanations for that in in the film. Um, in in uh, Thor, the the garbage heap seems to be like just a, a sign that of kind of nature finding its own level, right? Like of of like successive waves of enlightenment, you know, belching their belching their stuff out through the the many de- the the devil's anus and the many anuses, um, it, the many you know heavenly anuses that uh, just belch stuff onto this. Um, onto this heap, and that the the uh, grandmaster and the scrappers and things like this sort of used to bricolage together, and and uh, and the, you know an identity and and some semblance of a society, uh, because the the whole thing like is that the. Um, you know the the these material things uh, don't matter, or they're not they're not who you really are. I mean, Guardians had a had a uh, similar point about identity, right? That that the um, uh, uh, you know that the th- that the sort of material the material realm was was kind of a trap in a certain way. The, this is this seems to me to be set against the ethos of what what did you call them that not not the cosmic but what, or maybe you didn't name the other ones. Let's call them the terrestrial uh, the celestials. Do you mean the celestials? No, the, or... the I mean not the celestials. The terrestrials. Oh. The the Iron Man's uh, oh. and the the and the Captain's America. You know that um right that that like uh yeah that seemed to have a different a different ethos where the the um the the material world is not as uh you know is not as trivial a thing or is not a is not a sort of state to be transcended it's a state to be defended uh and something you know something to be treasured right like we couldn't you couldn't say you know at the end of avengers 4 right it couldn't be like uh, after the infinity war like oh well all the people of earth are on a giant spaceship and like yeah. earth earth wasn't a place it was just a, a state of mind right like right. and that that maybe this is a difference maybe this is a, yeah. a kind of like uh, a point of difference between the dichotomy you've proposed of the the uh, celestial Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and what I'm calling the terrestrial Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe movies. The, the way Marvel makes the distinction, I think, is that they refer to the Avengers as Earth's mightiest heroes. Sure. I think 
and so like yeah so like the world's finest for batman and superman and the the idea and that they're, they're earthly i would describe iron man and captain america as earthly heroes they're in, they're rooted in the earth they protect the earth if they can't if they can't defend the earth they'll by god they'll avenge it or whatever not by god or damn it or whatever he says will avenge the earth but the purpose of the avengers is to protect the earth from extraterrestrial threats which was the purpose of the valkyrie in this movie though not the purpose of the Valkyrie in Norse mythology in general. Right. But yeah, yeah, this idea that it's not okay. It is a little bit of a jump to say that it's okay to let Asgard just die. This whole plan kind of has some problems, but uh, I don't think that they are fatal problems. I think that it sort of carries the story forward, and I don't think that we can necessarily... No, of course, the they're, story. Not, they're not fatal, fatal problems. Everyone important lives. Yeah, everyone imported, and everybody who dies gets downgraded to being unimportant before they're killed off. <laughs> it's convenient how that can work. I mean, like so Titus Polo, yeah. In the in the the like, just against the backdrop of this dichotomy, Thor is an interesting picture uh, figure because he seems to span both worlds, right? Yeah. The the and and I mean, I guess because of his kind of dual nature, um, you know, you mean the Hulk. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the Hulk, uh, the the opposite of Thor, right? Like Thor belongs to Asgard and sort of takes his place. Uh, at, you know, at the, he sits down in the throne at the you know at the end of the movie. Um, you know, with Valkyrie on one side and and uh, the Hulk on the other side, and they're you know going uh, going for and and Loki who walks. I was actually wondering where is Loki in that last frame? Um, and then he kind of he enters. It's funny. Everyone walks up the steps. You know, in the like the the giant Star Wars Episode Four uh, metal scene at the end, where they process through the through the uh, assembled masses, and they walk up onto the podium, and they're like on the dais, like up, you know, above everybody, and they're looking out the giant window, which is the window to the future. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is everybody but Loki, and then Loki kind of enters from the side, so he had not been part of the procession, but he was just kind of waiting in the wings and and sort of sneaks in, which I thought was an interesting uh, visual way to. Um, you know, to indicate the the relationship of the characters. But no, what what I meant to say was Hulk uh, is an interesting figure because he he spans both worlds, both Earth's mightiest heroes and you know the strongest Avenger and someone who can uh, live in the in the celestial realm and uh, is you know in the in the end willing to make what we believe may be a great sacrifice uh, in order to help the Asgardians escape. Yeah, and I mean flesh that out a little bit, right? Is, well, you're saying because because Bruce Banner is presumed dead at the end of this movie, right? Yeah, and it's right? not it's not totally clear. I mean, that's floated more as a hypothetical yeah. or a fear. You know, it's kind of more in the style of like, uh oh, terrible things may happen. <laughs> um, but it's like you know, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him to be like, oh, Bruce Banner was with within you all along, right? Like, and and mm-hmm. to create a kind of more fluid, uh, you know, more a, a more um, uh, green fluid uh, sort of Hulk uh, Hulk banner um non-binary uh you know personality expression but the the uh the whole you know the the whole thing with this is that like even given that fear he jumps off the ship in the end to fight the wolf in the, the wolf who who you know swallows the sun in the um uh in the the uh sea under the bridge right and that the that that like this is not his planet you know like th- these are not these are not his people he he is uh, though he you know i don't know i guess the exposure to to uh gamma rays makes you 
you uh, cosmic in in some sense in in the same way that you know the exposure to LSD makes you psychedelic. Uh, but the um, uh, you know this is not a little bit. This is not his fight. He's a he's an Earth. He's a human, you know, um, and that uh, that the will, his willingness to make the sacrifice, I think, like marks a uh, marks him as a as a as a person who is kind of between between two worlds, uh, you know, not like the master of two worlds in the the Joseph Campbell mythology sense, but the kind of uh, the kind of monster of two worlds, maybe, or uh, in in a certain way, the servant of two worlds. Yeah, basically, like. The Hulk is the human being who is holding Carl Jung's book about the collective subconscious. <laughs> it is the way that it all spreads out. Is that the Hulk is the nexus between the psychological and the fantastical, and this. And I think, and I think that that is generally. I would. That's how I would generally describe my feeling of the Hulk's relationship with cosmic. Uh, Marvel, because the Hulk is able to live there. Well, first, because his basic power level is high enough that the Hulk can hang with these people who are out in the uh, outer reaches of space and are super powerful. And the Hulk has that kind of ability, and somebody like Ant-Man doesn't. Although, you know, I'm sure he shows up from time to time in this sort of thing. And we're going to see a lot more of this in Avengers Affinity War when Earth's Mightiest Heroes and Marvel Cosmic finally collide. And that's the sort of topic of the two movies that are coming up. But um, but it's it's also it's not just that Hulk is is that strong, but it's also yeah that Hulk is that transformative. That these stories are about transformation, altered states of consciousness, altered states of perception, different ways of thinking about reality. And Hulk is both really grounded and human because his experience of changing into a different person when he gets angry is the kind of thing that pretty much everybody can identify with on some level. But at the same time, the degree of his transformation with regards to the world around him is shamanistic in its aspect of transformation. Feels almost pagan in the way that it's about like sort of inner spirits and ritual. You know, he always tears the shirt and he always has the purple shorts. There's some sort of rite that almost happens when yeah. the Hulk becomes the Hulk, or the um, uh, or uh, yeah, exactly rituals around, and also kind of rituals that the other characters have been trying to establish about kind of unhulking, right? Like sun's going down, sun's going down, big guy, sun's going down, sun sundown, it's sunset, sundown, it's time. How, inter- how interesting is that? That in order to stop. Uh, uh, Bruce Banner from becoming the Hulk. The mantra is sun's going down, sun's going down, sun's going down. But when Bruce Banner makes a final choice to become the Hulk in his apotheotic move to literally become a god to participate in Ragnarok, what he does is beat up the wolf that otherwise would eat the sun. Right. Sun's going up. Sun's, sun's never going sun's up, never going right? down. Sun's yeah, never going sun's down. Never going down. <laughs> Don't let the sun go down on me. Uh, and uh, and the idea that Hulk's just gonna watch himself and hit Suter in the face. A big monster. This big monster. What what do you mean? You know? Um it's just this wonderful, but it's it's just it's all. I love how interconnected the movie is and how fast it moves. It keeps your mind busy enough that that I think that the jokes uh, just reach a, uh, a a a psyche in the moment, which I appreciate. I really appreciate. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I like this idea of the shamanistic ritual of the Hulk hulking out. You know, he gets angry and he just starts to smash, right? But this movie, uh, pretty quickly out of the gate, when it introduces the Hulk, actually undermines the strict shamanistic uh, uh, transformation that the Hulk undergoes with one key, with well, two key elements. One is that when the Hulk is hulked out, he can actually form a complete sentence yeah. and verbalize <laughs> beyond just like smash and rage and puny God and things yeah. like that. 
Um, and the other thing is that he, in his hulked out state, he's not only raging, right? They're in when they're uh, just hanging out in the Hulk's bedroom. Um, you know, a Hulk just, you know, he, he has like the Hulk like fire conversation. You know, he can actually, you know, uh, summon rage, up abstract, rage, abstract rage. thoughts. And it's not just enacting violence everywhere. I mean, I, I, again, it speaks to this idea of Hulk being uh, of two worlds, but it also sets up this notion that Banner is gone and that um, in order for the Hulk to continue uh, as a standalone thing, you know, he needs to be able to have that basic level of expressiveness and, and non-raging thing, right? You know, at, at the end, um, we see Hulk standing calmly, not punching, not killing anything uh, on the podium along with right. the rest of the characters, mm, right? Rage, and rage yeah. against the dying of the light. And, of course, Hulk goes through these kinds of transformations or changes, rather, shifts. Probably shift is a better word, from author to author and comic to comic over the years, where sometimes right. he's really savage and he's dangerous to the people around him. And that's kind of earlier Hulk. And then in this period where this sort of story is coming from, there's also this phenomenon called Professor Hulk, where just Bruce Banner is just in Hulk's body all the time and is smart and capable and to do whatever he needs to do and never transforms, which is something that might maybe the movies are going that direction. I don't know. Yeah. But one thing I would point out uh, to tie it into this movie's concern with ritual, uh, with sort of pre-Christian, post-Christian, shamanistic ideas of the, of the life and death and wisdom is Dios de los Hulkos happens in this movie <laughs> right where you have <laughs> exactly Wait, un- right un- unpack this for those who okay. so there's this so okay literary uh, one of the things that always informs the kind of criticism that i'm giving to these things is this notion of literary ambiguity wherein things can mean more than one thing at the same time and the degree to which they unify meaning more than one thing at the same time is part of what makes them beautiful so the fans of the grandmasters gladiatorial games and we haven't even talked about uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum in this movie yet, <laughs> but when we 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 need to. But the fans in the stadium love the Hulk, and they make effigies and signs of the Hulk, and they cheer for the Hulk, and they dress like the Hulk, and they they love Green because he's their sports figure. Uh, this is similar to the Greens in ancient Roman and, and Constantinople charioteering races as like a sports faction that is also a political faction that is also kind of like the culture of the masses that they love the Green guy. They love the Hulk, the champion. But when... Hulk is in hiding. After Hulk has that scene, by the way, I kind of cried a little bit in the really upsetting scene where the Hulk was smashing his head against the interior wall of the plane because he did not want to be reminded of the friends that he left behind and the people oh. that he loved. And he needed to stay angry in order to stay in denial about his the emotional truth of his situation. But anyway... Hulk goes back into Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner is walking the streets trying to keep the Hulk suppressed. And what's happening around him is a version of a Mexican Day of the Dead parade where yeah, all of these parade. heads are being paraded around on posts, right? Like, Dia but they're on the Hulk. Hulk. Diaz de los Hulkos in as in relation to Dia de los Muertos. Yes, it's exactly. The there you go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like it's the day of the Hulk. It's like yeah. the people are out on the streets parading the Hulk in effigy at the same time that the Hulk is tr- we're trying to keep the Hulk below the surface. But this is these sorts of rituals are, are about, you know, Samhain and All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day and, and the Day of the Dead. These are all related to old ideas of the boundary between the world of the living and the world of the dead being permeable, which is also 
also something that happens in this movie with Odin and Thor and the Queen of the Dead being the leader of the bad guys and having an army of the dead. So there's a lot of passage back and forth through the veil of life and death, the breaking of the floor in Odin's hall, right? And this is a case where the spirit of the Hulk is in is passing through the permeable membrane of Banner's psychology, and Banner is unable to keep it contained because we're in this sort of suspended carnivalesque space where the relationship with life and death has kind of been turned upside down. Right. If he, uh, I mean, there's there's also a kind of more uh, there's a kind of allegory of the soul reading where it has to do with repression, right? And right. like, and the Hulk is a figure who is, I mean, the Hulk is a figure who's available to all kinds of allegor- allegorization that. But, um, uh, you know, but a, a lot of it having to do with uh, masculinity, with repression, with, uh, you know, super ego versus yeah. it and and Family sort of trauma. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Tra- trauma and the kind of the return of the the return of the repressed. Right. And so that there's there's this sense in which, like, you know, uh, I, and then, you know, connect that with the idea of, you know, the idea of athletes or of pro wrestlers or something like that as as avatars for and, and kind of socially acceptable forms to to uh to channel and dispel um rage right or or all kinds of of socially unacceptable uh so uh antisocial impulses thing impulses which if you know given rein to freely by everyone all the time would lead to lead to a downtown fall of society would lead to the end of the world would lead to the sun being right. swallowed and and yeah. uh and you know and things like this and so it's all it's almost like what's happened is without their focal point without their like prism that only shows one color green right the the people the you know the hulkness is disseminated right throughout uh throughout the the society in order to not be like that they need their their one hulk and without it everyone becomes like a a paper mache hulk which is you know uh maybe fearsome to look at for a second um but which you know you can you can poke through with one finger right 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 yeah yeah definitely it's it's um you know, it's really uh, cool because yeah. it, right, it's like because Jeff Goldblum is using the Hulk as a form of social control. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like well, let's, uh, yeah. let's let's talk about Jeff Goldblum for for a little uh, just a, a hot minute here, right? Like, wh- what's going on with Jeff Goldblum's performance? It's great, uh, and it seems like it belongs in this movie, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it belongs in the rest of the the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it's so uh, it's so campy, or it's so like the only person who's allowed to be like this is you know Robert Downey Jr. in you know to have this kind of like effort attitude and the and the kind of. Uh, 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 you know the kind of like snide uh, asides and and things like this that that Jeff Goldblum gets the comments on the the pomposity um, and the uh, uh, solemnity of the the goings on. But he's a person who, who deploys pomposity and solemnity to to uh, a great great political effect. Uh, so, what did you think of this this uh, character in this performance? Well, well. First of all, it, in the place that it lives in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I refer to him as a celestial. I, they're also called elders of the universe in some of the stories. I think that this is one of those things where Marvel is kind of in making the movies is simplifying some of the way that these things are classified. And I'm I'm not such a huge Marvel fan that I can get the classification right all the time. But the point is that Kurt Russell as Eagle, the Living Planet, and Guardians of the Galaxy Two, uh, Benicio del Toro as the Collector. In Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy One, and he also appears after the credits in one of the other Marvel movies, and uh, Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster are are three members of the same race. 
of ancient beings, ancient cosmic beings. And in each case, it's a big star who gets pulled in and plays sort of like a super heightened version of themselves. Uh, I mean, I guess Benicio del Toro is the one who is most alienated from his public persona. I, maybe they don't really catch on to this until Kurt Russell does it. But but it is sort of like you're you're here to be a special guest star and and in, to bring your full personality because these are beings that have personalities that are bigger than the world or bigger than existence. They're they're greater than conventional life forms, and uh, in that sense. It makes sense to have somebody with a really huge personality like Jeff Goldblum play this part. Uh, like the idea at the end when Je- in the in the um, in the Niflheim of the credits near the end, where Jeff Goldblum talks about the revolution being a draw, uh, right? Which is like that's the standpoint of somebody who feels like they're above and beyond the problems of trifling mortals, uh, and and in that sense, he's really separated from this the. He has to be separated from the problems of the people that are under him by some sort of huge gulf of perspective, uh, much like Ego the Living Planet, where at first it seems like you're connecting with him, but then later on there are these revelations that, no, he's actually a very foreign sort of being to for any human to contemplate. The things that he's capable of are so different than what other people are capable of. Um, this movie doesn't quite go all the way, I think, with explaining that or cashing it out, but it does show it a lot, right? Um yeah, I mean, I gotta know. What do you think, Mark, about Jeff Goldblum in this movie? I co- I connect him mostly with Kate uh, Blanchett's character Hella and her perform okay. her her performance of Hella. Um, the word vamp uh, keeps mm. coming up a lot, and the word camp keeps coming up a lot. But Jeff Goldblum, um, you guys might be more familiar with this, but I feel like they're very connected. It speaks to an over the topness. I think it probably speaks to a certain amount of gender queer queerness, gender non non conformativity. Uh, going on there in that uh, they both of those characters are also very uh, sort of separate and apart from everybody else. You know, they're they're seen to be um, larger than life, controlling um, and uh, uh, powerful in their bodies and their sensuality in different ways. I mean, Kate Blanchett's got that kind of catsuit thing going on and she grows a crown out of her head, um, which is a very different thing than what Jeff Goldblum has going on. But there's a reference to his uh, pleasure spaceship where he has the orgies um and then jeff goldblum <laughs> where's the where's the makeup but there's this like way out there-ness and um and and hyperness and including aspects of sexuality for both of them and and it it allows the two of them in particular to stand apart from our heroes who are more relatable more likable more grounded that's my take on yeah. it in that standpoint then the extreme campiness of these figures serves to challenge the identity, the sort of performed identity and self-perception of the protagonists, which we've been talking about both with regards to Thor and how he thinks of himself as, as the son versus the father and how he kind of learns about life and death in the universe. And he, and he gets to this place where he feels very unmoored about who he is, but then by the end, he's very moored again in who he is. And part of becoming unmoored is confronting camp and saying like, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, by the way, you know, like, uh, you know, you are a body (laughs) and, and let's alienate your idea that your the way that your body and mind relate to each other is like really comfortable and easy to understand. Mm -hmm. Like, like, I mean, that's one of the ideas behind camp as, as I understand it. Right. Is that like by presenting people with 
gen, you know, gender camp, uh, what you're trying to do is is break up the assumption that there's a coherent unity to like mind, body, spirit, identity, all related to gender, and show that these things can, at least in theory, or at least in exhibition, be separated from each other and run along different axes. And that then challenges people to consider how do my idea of myself in my mind, my idea of myself in my body, how do these things relate to each other? Is it maybe to a different degree than I thought it was? Um, it makes people feel more comfortable who have suspected for a long time that there's some sort of discontinuity between the idea that everything in their life is supposed to line up in a very specific way around their social role. You know, and camp kind of breaks this, like sort of takes a hammer, takes a hammer to it, a thunder hammer <laughs> and like shatters it. And then you have to put the pieces back together in some way, if you want to move on with your life. Um, and, and we, Thor does that, and then Hulk also does it because he he goes to this sort of weird uh, psychological subspace of repression and uh, and gets sort of alienated from himself by this sort of uh, celebration and kind of uh, idolatry around his suppressed subconscious, well, which overwhelms his consciousness and destroys it uh, to an extent before it comes back. Anyway, sorry, go go ahead. Yeah, you know who else is in a psychological uh, subspace of suppression is Valkyrie. Yes, yes, right. So how does that square with it? But this interesting side note, which is not played out in this movie at all, but apparently in the Marvel comics, Valkyrie is um, uh, explicitly shown to be uh, – that's not the right word. But she's shown without any doubt to be bisexual in the comics. <laughs> Explicit uh, but in the not. sense of it being known and not implied. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I wish Jordan were on this podcast because when, one time Jordan was talking to me about – I guess familiar with Red Sonja. Red Sonja is another part of this whole reappropriation of Norse myth in the 70s and through heavy metal and like ex and exploitation. Basically, she's part of like airbrushed band mythos and she's like a warrior woman. She's, the, she's one of the original sort of like absurd, sexually exploitative barbarian women with swords and axes and stuff. And I think she you was know, sort of like of a piece with. Conan the Barbarian, as interpreted by culture, not necessarily as written originally by the guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian. But the point being that, like, Red Sonia holding a giant sword is a specific sort of gender expression. There's like a ta there's a name for that tableau of like the woman holding the phallic object as a particular sort of campy gender expression that Red Sonia and the barbarian women in chainmail bikinis of the 70s and 80s like really exemplified. And Valkyrie is living in that space when she's on that minigun, right, holding the big giant phallic minigun and blasting um yeah and she does this shake it doesn't exactly hump it but she like her body quivers with glee Did yeah yeah, yeah. That? yeah totally i totally saw it there's a shimmy i would describe yeah, it as, as a good, bit of a shimmy yeah. um but yeah but but then this idea that like um so there's a couple things one valkyrie also participates in a siegfried or sigmund story because they they change the valkyrie and what they make it is that she has another Valkyrie who dies for her. And I think the implication is that the Valkyrie who dies for her is her girlfriend or her wife, like her lover. Yeah, it's implied. And, yeah. And this relates to the biggest piece of gender camp in Old Norse mythology, in my understanding, which is Brunhilde uh, and, and Siegfried and the sort of male knightly warrior who slays the dragon and the, and the woman warrior who, like, uh, dies or is captured and he dies and they're in love and it's tragic. And, and there's this, like, love between these two sort of campy gender figures, a very pretty man and a very masculine woman who are part human and part god. And so there's a lot of, like, translation between one part and the other that's 
it's also related to like the subconscious. And in this movie, that in in Game of Thrones, this is played out by Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth. Uh, are are the characters that are being shown with? Valkyrie and presumably Valkyrie's lover, uh, who dies fighting Hela. Like what? Love, death, right? That's like it's Wagner and everything. Like that's all bound up in that stuff. Um, but sorry, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But the point being that yes, like Val- first of all, I love how rich Valkyrie's character is in this, as as the sort of former as guardian who is now the bounty hunter and is also an alcoholic, but also has these sexual things and gender things, and has a relationship with Thor and has a relationship with Hulk, uh, and also is you know clearly uh, has relationships with women and with her own gender. Uh, that are all pretty complex and and make her like I thought about it instantly when she put her hands up and fired her guns. She has that like really cool, con- very contemporary dance move sort of thing where she like like loads her guns and like fires them, you know, almost as if she's soldier boying, right? Like it's a little dated, <laughs> but but it's a similar like it's a dance move that she does when she kills everybody when during her entrance. Yeah, this, this um, is not particularly analytic, but she was just so magnetic. So yeah. look atable <laughs> right. this and all her iterations, especially at the end when she dons the white uniform and has the swords and the blue cape and then also the minigun, which she's kind of humping. She's shimming next to uh, it was just impossible not to look at her. And uh, it was just a, a, an incredibly arresting set yeah. of visuals. So mad props to whoever came up with yeah. that creative uh, um, uh, direction and also getting Tessa Thompson. Uh, yeah. to embody that role yeah it's t- interesting. tessa thompson being the the you know she was in creed uh she was in westworld you know t- she's worked a lot over the last uh 10 years or, or so um but uh i i guess veronica mars fans know her from from that but um you know uh yeah just a uh she's a, a really good a good actress and and the kind of the relationship well i the relationship i have a theory about but pete you sounded like you were going to say something oh I just wanted to talk about her relationships with Hulk and Thor for just a second. Yeah. Because there's there's definitely a sexually charged – there's an electricity to Valkyrie's relationship mm-hmm. with Thor. We remember when they both leap up onto the spaceship from the orgy spaceship through the docking bay, and they land face-to-face, and it's like they're standing a little too close, and there's this potential energy, and she kind of like like – participates in it for a second and then walks away and Thor like laughs at it because he's Thor and he's, you know, and he's, if anything, he's a God with appetites. Right. Um, but like, you know, the Thor Marvel's Thor is a Disney Thor who is not threatening in his appetites. Uh, but Thor knows what's up just that like, there's like a moment of electrical attraction, but the character that she really identifies with is Hulk, like Valkyrie and Hulk totally get along. And it's really interesting to think of Bruce Banner, this, this little tiny subplot where Valkyrie thinks that she knows who Bruce Banner is, and Bruce Banner is basically closeted, wearing an 80s new wave clubbing outfit, right? Like, he's basically a closeted genderqueer. He's wearing a Boy George outfit, which is really a Tony Stark Uh, outfit. And, and, And he's like, you don't really know who I really am. And, you know, and it's like at some point I'm going to come out and you're going to see who I really am. And then you're going to realize that I'm the person that you partied with back when we were drinking in my in my in my room. And I looked totally different and I felt totally different. And there's this aspect of like and again, that's not necessarily the same as like gender identification, but the dynamic of being in or being out and and kind of living your gender expression on the social fringes 
relating that then to Jung and Freud and subconscious psychology, the idea that Valkyrie's sort of gender expression and the way that she suppresses her pain and loss of her Wagnerian love death through alcoholism is similar to Hulk's psychological suppression and, and his sort of anger and loss and pain and how he suppresses it through punching people right? Like and, and smashing in this movie, right? It's, it's almost like Hulk is suppressing Banner, but then Banner is suppressing Hulk. But it's cool because they're, the systems don't really – connect with each other fully in their operation in the world, but like symbolically and formally they relate to each other. And so it makes sense that these characters relate to each other and feel for each other. And then in the context of this comedy, that all can just be subtext. That can all just sort of be under the surface. And in and the surface can be like, hey, aren't you that guy? Like, maybe. I don't know. I'm not the guy. I'm Tony Stark. Whatever. You know, that kind of thing. Um, it's just, I just love the subtext of this movie. I don't, but anyway, Matt, that was what I wanted to say about, yeah, the, the, about I mean, Valkyrie. The, yeah. the, the psychological like concept that, that seems to be uh, at play here is like Jungian depth psychology, which is like mm-hmm. the transpersonal aspects of, of archetypes and, and, you know, subtle kind of, um, a non, you know, below the level of consciousness and below the level of kind of like personal identity, the kind of like the kind of like uh, uh, interpersonal soup that is shared um, among the uh, among the the you know various actors, various actors in the system. Um, the the I guess uh, you know we're we're nearing the time when uh, when we swallow the sun and and the world of this podcast ends. But but fortunately, overthinking it as a people, it's not a it's not a place. Um, the uh, the uh, but. The the thing i mean the thing that i i'm one one thing that got thrown around a little bit with this movie one term in an article that i read about it was that the original pitch of this movie was as a buddy comedy right and it was going to be a thor uh hulk kind of buddy comedy right as the you know as the kind of the responsible and the appetitive uh ones or the you know with with you know with hulk as the as the crazy one and and thor as the the straight man that doesn't exactly happen but there are um a whole bunch of buddy comedy potentialities uh, it, it's it's a constellation of buddy comedies, you know. It's a it's a constellation of of the Thor Loki movie, the Thor Hulk movie, the Thor Valkyrie movie, the the Hulk Valkyrie movie, um, and things like things like this, and and that like in this sort of uh, this sort of one on one. A lot of the confrontations or the the important moments are transacted sort of one on one and not around the table, as it were. And that uh, you know, um, even in the even in the, uh, the parodic play that begins the um, that begins the uh, the time on Asgard, where uh, Hulk and Loki are, are where uh, Hulk and Loki, Thor and Loki, keep making that mistake. Uh, th- uh, the actors who play them are you know giving their dying you know exchanging uh, dying words that the. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a sort of one-on-one, it's sort of a face-to-face, um, it's a face-to-face reckoning and, and, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly, exactly where that, where that goes, but it, the, the, the social unit, um, the larger complex social unit seems to devolve into a, a, a complex of dyads. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that dyads, triads, this stuff is all associated with, 
why people might still be interested in mythological systems when they no longer explain the observable world <laughs> and like why we might turn to superheroes who have something of a mythological relation is because it does it does give us ways of connecting dyads triads combinations uh it, it makes me think of the um there's the uh, the symbol uh, that is that Doctor Strange uses to send them to Asgard, which is also the symbol that's on the basement of Odin's vault, is the Celtic cross, which I think sometimes symbolizes Odin. It's sort of a triptych. It's like a triple symbol. Uh, and it's funny because it's also the symbol of John Paul Jones, the drummer of Led Zeppelin from the Zoso album from Led Zeppelin 4, which is where the immigrant song comes from. But yeah, it's like this isn't really a movie about refugees and exodus and how we save a people and in fact that part of it with heimdall kind of felt like the most disconnected part of the movie for me uh this is much more about the kind of like interplay and clashing of like two or three forces of nature embodied in consciousnesses and people uh and like humans uh, in relation to cosmic forces and spiritual forces relating in like ones and twos and threes uh which is the kind of thing you can do if there are gods involved because you can have only 12 of them or nine of them or whatever three of them and they can encompass all the important stuff that is happening whereas once you start talking about people then you have to start expanding that number either into the thousands or you have to live in a saved by the bell cosmology where like the only people that matter are a small group of friends and it's not explained why mm. <laughs> you know why like uh well i think i said once like somebody could run into bayside high and like I think if AC Slater ran into Bayside High and decapitated a whole bunch of people and then decapitated Screech, that would be the problem. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a certain amount of that that's happening in this movie where it's like, oh, these Asgardians have died. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's all the red shirts are gone, but the people that matter are the, are the sort of god figures that have like important psychological, spiritual, metaphysical implications in like what they're doing and who they are and how they relate to each other. Yeah. Well, it's, and, a, it's the overthinking a cosmology as well. You know, you can explain your entire universe with uh, Fenzel, Lee, and Rather on the podcast, like like <laughs> like Darmok, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Uh, all right. Well, that's it. that is uh, enough overthinking a podcast on Thor Ragnarok. We'd love to hear what you think of the movie in the, the comments on the show notes for this episode. We will be back with more overthinking a podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.